God now introduces Israel soon to be king, but not before he sets forth his genealogy and exposes the lack of his shepherding skills. This is the 23rd sermon in the series Dynasty Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Royal Covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 9 and the entire text. 1 Samuel in chapter 9, a lengthy reading, 27 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, as we read of the rise of Saul, the choosing of the king of Israel. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Bech-Orath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise, go seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shal-Isha. But they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalem, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come, and let us return, lest my father leave carrying for the asses, and take thought for us. And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. And said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go... What shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God what we have. And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver that will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before times called a seer. Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And he answered them and said, He is, behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to the city, for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye be come into the city, ye shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice, and afterward they eat that be bidden. Now therefore, get you up, for about this time ye shall find him. And they went up into the city, and when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. 
And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold the man whom I spake to thee of. This same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite? of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my father least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? And Samuel took Saul and his servant, and brought them into the parlor, and made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden, which were about thirty persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, Set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder, and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul, And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before thee, and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day, that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel, abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Verse 29, by the same Spirit, the Apostle says this, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world... And things which are despised God hath chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finely authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and by His holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. We now come to the actual introduction of the man who would be king, Saul, The Benjamite. Notice, verse 1 of chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was, you would think, Saul. Well, that's not how it begins. Who was a man whose name was Kish? Saul's father. This was the name of Saul's father. God introduces Saul at this point in a very curious fashion. That is, through his father Kish and the lineage, in fact, an extended lineage of his entire ancestry. And so, instead of beginning with verse 2, where Saul is actually introduced, God begins with his father. Saul is not introduced properly until after God 
lays out his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his entire lineage. And it is as if God is beginning to lay out for us some sort of a, a dynasty of the Benjamites. And then this introduction serves to show, at least practically speaking, that lineage, where you come from, that is, your home and ancestry, it matters. It matters either for good or it matters for evil. So fathers, if you expect to have a, a blessed lineage, a blessed ancestry, begin now building it. Do not wait for someone else to build it or do not wait to correct it that it might be for evil instead of for good. Now, Kish was obviously a man of some renown. Now, he was one of the least because he was a Benjamite. We'll get to that in a moment. But he was obviously a man of some some influence, at least according to the scripture, because God is now laying out this, this Benjamite dynasty, whether it was for good or for evil, that Benjamite dynasty, that Benjamite dynasty had some baggage to say the least. But he introduces Kish obviously as, as, as a man of, of influence, at least among his people and his father and his uh, grandfather before him. And this would make Saul uh, a perfect candidate or maybe not a perfect candidate in the eyes of the people since they were, they were so superficial, they were going to look upon Saul. He was goodly looking. He was, he was a head and shoulders above everyone else. And you've got to remember that the people, the elders and the people of Israel were so superficial, that's what they were going to look at. They were going to look at the guy who was good looking. He was tall. He came from the tribe of Benjamin for either good or for evil. And he had this lineage that, that is being paraded before us in the first verse. So maybe they were looking at this superficial tribe and seeing Saul. And they will accept Saul because of that superficiality. And that remains a snare. Not only in their day, but in our day. To look only at the outward appearance of someone and make a determination is superficial. Because an outward show... In the eyes of God means nothing. It is the inner man that God is looking at. It is the inner man of the heart that makes a man or a woman or a boy or a girl what she really or he really is. Speaking of the character of women, which can be applied to men as well, the apostle explains. Peter says this, 1 Peter 3, 4, But let it be, this is what you should focus upon, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, and that's what we're really concerned with, what is in the sight of God, of a great price. And yet these men of seemingly renown, or at least influential, or renown, or even even renown in a negative way, they were going to have public acceptance from the superficial elders and the people of Israel. God sets the stage here for Saul to enter into the narrative without valuable or without noble beginnings. The Benjamite tribe was of a humble beginning and yet he would be elevated in his pride. And this is what we see. Pride would go before his destruction. So God sets the stage for Saul to enter into this narrative with this dynasty behind him, either for good or for evil, with this dynastic background, and this is how God introduces him. 
to point us back to who these Benjamites were. And as we shall see, he is the opposite of a legitimate king. Although he comes from the Benjamite humble beginnings or a, a tribe which had some very dubious background, thinking that maybe because of that background he would be humble, he's anything but humble. And he is the foil, he is the opposite of David, the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. Now God, of course, in our New Testament sets down this principle. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, Saul, although coming from this, this tribe that should have been humbled by their past, is anything but humble. And yet, God is going to use him, God is going to use him to humble Israel. By the time we get to verse 2, God introduces Saul as a choice, notice the wording, whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly, and not among the children of Israel was any goodlier person than he. From his shoulders on upward, he was higher than all of the people. In other words, he was a man, a young man, a strapping uh, specimen of strength and vibrancy and rigor. Excellent in his outward appearance. Very handsome. And from what we know, and from what we know of Saul, these attributes were only as deep as his flesh. Because these attributes did not go any further than his outward show as they did with David. Unlike David, who is also of a beautiful countenance and a goodly man, goodly to look upon and beautiful as the scriptures in the Hebrew define him, David's beauty was more than superficial. David's beauty was inward. David's beauty was comprehensive. And that is what made these men, these two men, distinct. They are on opposite sides of the narrative, opposite sides of the spectrum. Outward both beautiful, but only one had a heart which was after God. Only one had a beautiful heart because it was the inner man that God had looked at. And so we have two handsome young men who are opposite of each other. Consider for a moment who these men actually represent. Now it's easy to know who David the son of Jesse represents since he is the earthly and historical representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king. And David actually is the true king. Saul is going to be found out as the first king, but eventually a usurper, a rebellious man. So therefore, Saul, opposite of Jesse, on the other hand, while his representation may be a little bit more difficult to nail down, I believe he is a type or a representation, or a symbol, in order to flesh out some gospel meaning of Adam, the first king, but the one who falls into grave apostasy because of his pride. Adam's problem was his pride. Saul's problem was his pride. So consider it this way. Consider this. The first king that ever walked upon the earth was Adam. He was the prince. He was God's man. 
He was the federal head, the prince who was placed in the garden, and he was called the Son of God, even in the same way that Christ was called and is called the Son of God. And we see this in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Within the lineage, Luke ends this way, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So in a very real way, Adam was the son of God. In the same way that Adam and Christ are connected, because they are intimately connected, so too are Saul and David connected. Saul is eventually found out as a wicked man, in the same way that Adam is found out because of his wickedness and finally found out by his rebellion against God. Now notice Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 speaks of Adam as a beautiful creature placed in the Garden of Eden only for God to find him in rebellious iniquity. In referring to Adam as the king of Tyrus, Ezekiel says this, verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sun full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. So who is in Eden? It was Adam. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. Now you have to understand that in the breastplate of Jesus Christ, he has all of these in his priestly breastplate. He has all of these stones typifying the people of God. Adam was beautiful. Adam was the priest of God. He was in fact clothed with the priestly garments, symbolically of course, of Christ. But he found in his own heart, he found the rebellious nature. Notice what it says. The workman of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Now, a cherub is a symbol of man throughout the scriptures. And notice what God says. I have set thee so. In other words, you're the anointed one. Just like Christ is the anointed one. He was to be the priest of the created order. That was upon the holy mountain of God. That was walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. That was perfect, or righteous is this word here, perfect in Hebrew, in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. For both Adam and Saul, pride was their downfall. And herein is the lesson. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The root of man's destruction is his pride. Pride is what precedes all other sins. In other words, I deserve a thing. That's pride. So I'll do a thing, whether it's lawful or unlawful. Pride is man's destruction. This is why God says, I will look to this man, a a humble man. And he says that over and over and over. A man who fears God, who keeps his commandments. You see, because once a soul, an individual, thinks of him or herself as special, trouble begins to brew. Even for the Christian, you think you're something special, so now you have... You have license to do things which are not permissible because grace will abound to the chiefest of sinners? No, that's that's a damnable attitude. The only reason why we can ever say that we are special is because of what Christ is doing in us and has done for us. And so the one thing that needs to be checked above everything and anything else is our pride. 
because pride destroys not only men, women, boys, and girls, it destroys worlds. Consider what pride does. It distinguishes itself as something else so that the prideful individual cannot identify itself for what it is. Secondly, it is a satiating and satisfying sin which anesthetizes the individual into a numbing comfort, thinking all is well with his soul. And so the prideful man has this false sense of security. Look at me, what a wonderful creature I am. I am a goodly looking person. I am head and shoulders above all other men. I'm beautiful, I'm smart, I'm skilled, I'm this thing, I'm that thing, I'm the other thing. That is anesthetizing. It's deceiving. Thirdly, one of the ways in which a man is deceived is that he holds a false sense of humility and he can deceive others with that as well. This is how the Pharisees position themselves. When that one particular Pharisee boasted of himself that he was not like other men while he was in the temple, it's a good thing I'm so humble, I'm not like those other prideful men. Number four, a prideful man is also self-confident. While self-confidence in and of itself is good, if its root is pride, it can lead to problems. We should instill in our children self-confidence, but not prideful confidence. Number five, Self-pride is idolatry. It is the idolatry of the self. The prideful man sees himself as godlike, and while he may not say this outright, he secretly wants everyone to admire him and give him the glory that he thinks he deserves because he's truly in love with himself, but in a wicked way. Number six, pride also manifests itself in the mindset that the world owes him something. It's the idea of entitlement. This is the root of the social justice movement. Number seven, the prideful man also thinks that God loves him for who he is and for what he does when the fact of the matter is God doesn't love the man for who he is and what he does, but only who he is and what he can do in Christ. He fails to acknowledge that he is a depraved fallen sinner since his narcissism and pride is unable to contemplate such a reality. This is why churches don't preach about the sinfulness of man because they need the mortgage payment. And you're not going to tell someone how wicked they are and hold them in a congregation. But you see, that's not the whole story. The story is, here's what we are. Look at what has Christ done for us and what he's paid in order to get us to this point. You see, if man would only come to terms with the fact that God is not well pleased with him for his natural state, in that natural fallen state, he would fall into the pit of despondency and unbelief. And if he ever dared to contemplate That narcissist, if he ever dared to contemplate that he was so depraved, it would probably destroy him because he was so narcissistic. And so he continues to boast and glorify himself before men and even before God. From the lineage of Saul, we might infer that he became the choice of the people simply because of his affiliation with his family's dynastic influence and his striking outward appearance, but it was all a superficial show. 
It was the stumbling block for the elders of Israel and the people who refused to look at the heart rather than the outward show. Now, concerning David, we read this as the opposite of Saul in chapter 16, verse 7 of 1 Samuel. Notice, when we get there, we will read this. But the Lord said to Samuel, look not on his countenance. Even though David was as beautiful, if not more beautiful than Saul. But God says, don't look at that. That's not important. That's not what I'm looking at. Nor at the height of his stature. Because I have refused him. Okay? For the Lord seeth not, and he's speaking, he's speaking to the, to the brothers here. For I am looking not as a man seeth. For as a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. So as Jesse parades his sons before Samuel, God says, be careful, don't look on the countenance of this man, nor at the height, don't do what you did with Saul, don't do what the people did for Saul's case. I am refusing these people, I am refusing Jesse's sons, other than David, because I'm looking at the heart. So the people's choice for Saul, in concert with the elders, testify of their blindness and their worldliness. And this is a snare for us when we look at political candidates. We have to go beyond what they're saying, beyond what they look like. Oh, they're charismatic. Oh, they have a good message. Oh, they're, they're, they speak so, so wonderfully and so loftily. We've got to look beyond. got to look to the heart. And that is not always an easy thing to do. So how should the elders of Israel vetted Saul? How should they look at him? What should they have done? What questions should they have asked of Saul before they said, come on in? Of course, they were uninterested in any of these things since they all wanted a king like the other nations to go to war against the Philistines. They were in effect looking at Saul as the messianic hope of Israel. In particular, he was to be for them not so much an overall deliverer, but a military Messiah. So in particular, he was to be a military man, and that's why God refers to him as a captain. But what should the elders have looked for? What is it that they should have looked for? Well, firstly, they should have looked for evidences of regeneration, real deep evidence of regeneration. A man is known by the fruit of what he has done consistently throughout his life. A man of regeneration is conspicuously engaged in the things of God even when no one is looking. I want to repeat that. If you are a man of God or a woman or a boy or a girl and you are truly his child, then you will be about the Lord's business even when no one is looking. But Saul was not a man of that kind of focus. And this was told to the elders in no uncertain terms by Samuel that Saul was not a regenerate man. He was not the right man for the position of king. And as a result of Saul's lack of godly focus, he lacked godly fear. You cannot have godly focus without godly fear. And if you have godly fear, you will have godly focus even when no one is looking. Because you know God is always looking. Now, this godly fear is the fundamental requirement for all rulers, not only all people, but all rulers in particular. Contemplating the character traits of the godly ruler, David by the Spirit declares this, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That's what Saul lacked. 
Lack of godly fear is dangerous since it shows that the man that lacks this grace is void of wisdom, which always results in his acting in folly. Saul, as we will see, and as Samuel warned, Saul was a man prone to folly. In commenting on 2 Samuel 23, the Reverend Charles Chauncey, speaking before the Majesty's Council and the Massachusetts Bay House of Representatives on May 27, 1747, explained it this way. If we may judge by the manner in which these words are introduced, and he's looking at 2 Samuel 23, there are none in all the Bible applicable to civil rulers in their public capacity of more solemn importance, ruling in the fear of God. That is the key. What Israel failed to recognize, and what so many people today fail to recognize, is that there is a certain order among men which God himself has ordained whereby men must govern. Even in the face of a divine warning, Israel's leadership turned a deaf ear to the warning of God by his prophet Samuel. Samuel was a Benjamite, the tribe of Benjamin. Very spotty history, perhaps a tribe not to be trusted. Maybe they were well known in, in, in Saul's father's case or grandfather's case, but they had a spotty history. They were really not to be trusted. Instead of tribal affiliation, let's shift our examination to either family affiliation or, in party, or party affiliation. And this is not to say that the Republican Party is the party of redemption. Far be it. There's no such thing as a political party of redemption. They, more like the elders of Israel, are propping up and continue to prop up questionable men. Israel knew that that Benjamin was problematic in the same way that so many Christians know that the Democrats and some of the Republicans are problematic. And yet, to their own destruction and to the destruction of the culture, they turned a blind eye supporting and voting for that party's candidate. Now, in spite of the warning and all of the signs of impending doom and impending tyranny that Samuel gave Israel, Israel still lusted after a man who they thought would bring them into the promised land by defeating all their enemies. Now, to the mind of Israel, Saul would bring peace, prosperity, national superiority, all of this they believed that he would bring. And it's important to reiterate that it was the leadership within the nation of Israel that wanted Saul first and foremost. In the same way that throughout the history of America, Legislative bodies, governors, senators, and representatives of the people have propped up men that were less than honorable to rule. And then we complain that there's tyranny and and wickedness. So, it's time to clean house within the ranks of the civil leaders and within the ranks of the ecclesiastical leaders by exposing them to the light of the Word of God. And this is where the Christian comes in. This is why the Christian church has been instituted to expose the heretics. And this is why the Christian church can never remain silent or complacent in the culture war. Because when the wicked are in authority, the results are always tragic. Samuel had told the elders of Israel that Saul was not right with God, not only as a civil ruler, but in his private capacity as well, as we're going to see in a moment. The second problem that Saul had was that he was not a just man. He was just a man, but he was not a just man. He lacked godly fear. 
He was depraved and he had no sense of biblical justice. Reverend Chauncey further explains it this way. He says, they must be concerned with a fair judgment of that fundamental law of Jesus. And this duty includes in it more than a negotiation of unrighteousness. It is not enough that rulers are not unjust, that they don't betray the trust reposed in them, that they don't defraud the public, that they don't oppress the subject, whether in a barefaced manner or in a more covert way, by downright violence or under the cloak of law. This is not enough, I say, that rulers don't in these and in such like ways pervert judgment and justice. But beside all this, they must be positively righteous. Being possessed of an inward, steady, uniform principle of justice, setting them in a good measure above influence or private interests or party views, they must do that which is equal and right in various stations from the king and supreme to the lowest in authority under him. Moreover, they must be just in the use of their power, confining it within the limits prescribed in the Constitution that they are under, end quote. That was preached in America in May in the 1700s. One of the pitfalls of all civil rulers that have not the fear of God nor an acute sense of his justice is that they often fall prey to their own wicked self-interests. This is the rock upon which men are destroyed and their testimonies are marred forever. Self-interest at the expense of others is a result of covetousness. It's a power grab. This was Jethro's counsel when vetting potential rulers. Notice Exodus 18.21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, there it is again, able men or skilled, fearing God, men of truth. He had to be declaring truth. He had to be a declarer of truth. The declaration of truth had to come out of his mouth. Who hated covetousness. That's the vetting principle. God's counsel is further given in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 15. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Now one of the, ten, now one of the telltale signs that a ruler is an unjust tyrant is when that ruler suspends the civil rights of the people, either through unjust laws, executive mandates, or judicial activism. And once that happens, the mask is removed, and the tyrant is right there, blatant for all to see. He's revealed himself as the tyrant, as an enemy of the gospel, as an enemy of Christ, who does not fear God, and who will be held accountable. Chauncey again weighs in. He says, as rulers would be just, they must take all proper care to preserve entire the civil rights of a people. They should do it by appearing in defense of their liberties, if called into question, and making use of all wise and suitable methods and suitable methods to prevent the loss of them. Nor can they be too active, diligent, or laborious in their endeavors upon this head, provided always the privileges in danger are worth contending for, and such as the people have a just right and legal claim to it. They should also express this care by seasonally and faithfully placing a proper guard against the designs of those who would rule in a despotic manner to the subversion of the rights naturally or legally vested in the people." End quote. 
We've got the exact opposite. Why? Because the church, the pulpit, has been compromised. The churches are no longer interested in liberty and justice and righteousness. They're interested in all of the things that bring more people in, the entertainments and all of those other things. One very important point that Chauncey makes is that the liberties of the people are not only threatened by the high-ranking government officials, but others who are outside of government. We have seen this in the halls of churches who side with others, both within and without the government institutions, in an effort to suspend our God-given rights under both the Scripture and the Constitution of the United States. And so now even some of the churches have become the enemies of the gospel. Isn't that insane and incredible that in our day we would find churches of Jesus Christ encouraging wickedness. And so the enemies are not concentrated in the halls of government. They're in the churches as well, as we saw with Israel, within the clergy. Liberty was under attack by the elders of Israel, the clergymen, the pastors, the judges. Fear had caused them to look to man for security and freedom. That's what we're dealing with today. But in the end, where did it get them? Slavery, misery, death. Despite all of Saul's flaws, mysteriously, God chooses him as commander of Israel as a test and as a chastisement against Israel's infidelity. Consider the historical development. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he from his shoulders upward and he was higher than any of the people. Now verse 2 is curious to me because his head and shoulders were above all of the Israelites and this is stated clearly for a reason. Because the enemies of Israel, think about this, the Philistines, who were they? They weren't midgets. They weren't little people. They were tall. Think about Goliath. The tallest, yes, but they were all tall. This was something in the mind of the elders of Israel, that was something they needed. They needed a tall man. Because the enemies of Israel were all very tall men, and physical stature was always a feature of Israel's enemies. And what they wanted, they wanted a man to go out against their enemies, and he had to be tall. And so by being very tall like the enemies of God, the elders believed that he would be a formidable adversary. We're going to see that that was not the case in the future. We'll see this. In American politics, when one political party wishes to oust another political party, they simply choose just another politician who is like the contender in so that they may have a fair standoff. Israel saw Saul as something like the Philistines, yet very much unlike the Philistines, at least so they thought. But he was a Philistine at heart. This was Israel's political blunder, much like our our blunder thousands of years later, and obviously we haven't learned anything from history. The account of Saul begins with a very common event, fully orchestrated by God, so that we would understand who Saul is, that Saul would be the chosen king, and who he really was deep down inside. So here we have the narrative. Saul is commissioned to locate his father's donkeys, but he's very unsuccessful. He goes here, he goes there, he can't find them. Well, we might say that he lost them initially, That's why his father probably sent him out to find them. A poor shepherd, definitely a poor shepherd, 
a flaw in his shepherding skills? How does one shepherd a people if he cannot shepherd livestock? A few donkeys. And this shows that as a result of the difficulty of the task, he's trying to shepherd these donkeys, trying to find them. He goes here, he goes there, he goes there. And, and when he can't find them, after three cities, he decides, it's not worth it, I'm going to give up. You see, if, if a leader is so ready to give up, after one trial, two, three, or four, then when the going gets really tough, can he actually lead? You see, he was unworthy to lead. And this is what's being fleshed out here in this account of Saul. But it's also showing us something so much more ominous, something so much more detrimental to his character. When the going did get tough, Saul never even thought, it never even crossed his mind that he should seek the face of God. That he should ask one of God's prophets or that he should ask in prayer for help in finding these these donkeys never even dawned on him it was up to it was up to his servant his servant had to say oh maybe we should see someone who can help us maybe we should inquire of god so Saul is ready to quit in verse 5 ready to quit until the suggestion is made to seek the help of Samuel the man of god and god is orchestrating all of this and he tells Samuel as much. Now the Lord had told Samuel, verse 15, in the ear, a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel. There are a number of things here to be noted. And I think one of them is that when Samuel heard that it was someone from Benjamin, he might have said, Wow, why Benjamin? Why not Judah? Why not one of the other tribes, more noble, more honorable? First, God was actually going to use Saul to defeat the Philistines, but at the same time, the victory, initially, remember, Saul is going to initially, as we shall see, beat the Philistines. But at the same time, the real victory, the actual victory, would be through David's fight with Goliath, which will show Saul's inability to lead And he was not, as we shall see, a man of courage. Second, we see God caring for the plight of his people in spite of their lack of faith in him. In other words, he tells Samuel, I have heard their cries, and I am going to act to deliver them and comfort them, at least initially. So Samuel tells Saul that he has become the desire of the people. And even though the elders of Israel and the people of Israel wanted a man that was not after God's own heart, God is still being merciful. So Samuel tells Saul that he has become the desire of the people. Verse 20, And as for thine answers that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found, and on whom is all the desire of Israel? In other words, a rhetorical question, Is it not thee? and on all thy father's house. Now whether or not Saul's answer is sincere humility, or a false sense of humility, we really don't know. He does, however, seem surprised as to the honor given him by Samuel. In fact, it's interesting how Samuel honors Saul. In fact, it's amazing knowing what Saul will be. He, Even though he knew exactly what was going to happen through Saul upon Israel, he still is honoring him as God had told him. Samuel is not, however, honoring the man. I think that must be seen. 
He's honoring the office. And he will do so until Saul violates his oath of office, at which time Saul will become invalidated and no longer a legitimate ruler. But as of this time, he is given honor. We see this in verses 22 through 24. From verse 25 on, we can only assume that Samuel gives Saul his marching orders as to what he must do and what he must be as the commander of Israel. Notice verse 25. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. So he was talking to Saul. He was telling him what's happening. He's laying it out before him. But before departing from Samuel, Saul is given further instructions directly from God. Verse 27. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant to pass on. I'm going to give you a private message. Only you should hear this. And the servant passes on, and Samuel says to Saul, But stand thou still a while, so that I may show you the word of God. That I may show you the word of God. This is the real crux of the message. The message that Samuel gives Saul is detailed in the next chapter. And it is at this time that God substantiates Saul as the chosen man of God, despite his reprobation as a man among the prophets. We will consider that next when we move into chapter 10. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.